church, would you remain standing with me as we read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Maybe seated. So as best I can tell, Jesus is somewhere between a few months and a few weeks away from the cross. It's spring in the year 30 AD. Before the disciples know what's happened, they're going to be scattered. Their master arrested, beaten, accused, tried, and sentenced to death. These men who once fought over which of them was greatest in the kingdom of God, these fools who jockeyed for positions closest to the king, these cowards who swore that they would not abandon Jesus Christ no matter the cost, before much longer, they would be hiding like little girls. The Messiah was abandoned, left alone in utter darkness to die the death that they deserved, to drink down the wrath, the wrath that they had earned. See, as these men traveled towards Jerusalem, they had no way of fully understanding all that Jesus Christ would endure on their behalf. They had even less of an understanding of how they were intended to respond. See, it wouldn't be until the sending of the Holy Spirit until that indwelling supernatural work of God that they would fully understand all that Jesus had said. It wasn't until the sending of the Holy Spirit that they would be fully equipped for this life of enduring discipleship that lay ahead. And yet, from this point until Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he would continue to touch, continue to teach, continue to bring these men to a little bit more understanding, a deeper understanding, a greater sight with regards to what it meant to follow him and enter into the kingdom of God. But this would not be an easy task. Jesus would have to overcome centuries of faulty theology, decades of personal opinions and experiences and emotions. See, what these men needed, it wasn't just some new information. It was a new heart, a new heart filled with the truth of God. The same is true for us. Church, we enter into our 15th month of walking verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. It's been such a great joy as we've looked on and studied the life and the ministry, the words, just the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that unless God has granted you spiritual ears to hear, unless he's done this regenerative work and and given you a new heart, I know that all this is amounted to is just the ramblings of a preacher. I know that it requires the supernatural hand of God for you to have any understanding, any insight into what he has said to you. I know that your ability, your ability to comprehend what I say to you this morning, your ability to understand the word of God, it is not tied up in my abilities as a preacher. It's not even tied up in you or your abilities as a hearer. It's all the working of the Holy Spirit, and yet still, I have this sense of urgency. I have this sense of urgency because we live in a dark world. We live in a world under the power of the evil one. We live in a world where so many who call themselves Christian, they seem to have no real understanding of the gospel. A world where so many who call themselves Christian, they have absolutely no evidence that this gospel has transformed their life. We live in a world where people that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, they don't look all that different from people that know nothing of God. We live in a world where men and women may or may not show up to a place like this on Sunday morning, but they're going to spend the rest of the week, Monday to Saturday, looking just like their neighbors. We live in a world where claiming the name of Jesus Christ isn't all that different than picking a favorite sports team or deciding which political party you're going to follow. A world where Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with radical obedience and everything to do with personal rights. A world where Christianity has nothing to do with absolute truth and everything to do with social causes. Dear friends, a preacher, he cannot change your heart. A congregation, we cannot manufacture this new spiritual birth that is needed, but by golly, we have been called. We have been called by the name of the living God. We have been called by the power of his spirit. We have been called by the authority of his word. We have been called to preach the truth of his gospel. Trusting that it is only by this truth that men may be changed. Under the power of the working of his spirit, side by side with this word, that he would transform us. That we wouldn't just be people that speak the truth. We wouldn't just be people that preach the truth. We wouldn't even just be people that hear the truth. That we'd be doers of the truth. 
doers of the word. That's my desire for us this morning as we return to the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. So stand to your feet, please. In reverence of reading of God's word. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All God's people said, I mean, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it begins like this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So somewhere along the road, we've talked about this. Jesus and his disciples are in Perea. They will soon be crossing over at Jericho before heading up into Jerusalem. But somewhere along this journey, this man, he comes running up to Jesus. Now, running wasn't really a thing that people did back then. Men, whether they were young or old, it wasn't dignified to be running. But this man didn't care about his dignity. This man came with an absolute humble posture. You'll notice that he didn't just come running up to Jesus Christ. He comes running and he kneels before him. Not caring what he looks like, not caring who sees him kneeling there on the ground. This wasn't just any man. As we'll read a little bit later, this was a rich man, a man with great possessions. Luke tells us that the man was extremely rich. Luke also tells us that the man was a ruler. I'm imagining this means that he was a lay leader of some sort in a synagogue. Matthew goes on to tell us that the man was young. If we combine all three of these accounts, we find that this is the rich, young ruler, as this story has popularly come to be called. So this man comes. And he knows that something is missing. He knows that despite all that he has, despite all that he's accomplished, he knows that something is missing. This thing that he longs for is eternal life. Ionios zoe in Greek. Eternal life. This is more than just a life that doesn't end. You see, even the damned, their life goes on forever. They live forever in the eternal presence of God under his wrath, under unending punishment. This man longs for a quality of life. A certain quality of life, a type of life that only God can give him. Eternal life. A life of loving fellowship. A friendship with God. An unending life in the blessed presence of his creator. That's what this man longs for. And he knows that this is a thing that does not wait until death. This is a thing which can be had now. As Jesus says in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has. Present tense has eternal life. This is what this young rich man longed for. This is what he came to God seeking, and this really is so rare, especially at this day and age, for a rich man like this to come running, knowing that he was missing something, because in the eyes of the Jewish people, material material possession, it indicated God's favor, and this wasn't without warrant. Throughout the Old Testament, God was promising and delivering prosperity to people that had obeyed and honored him. We think about man like Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, King David, man like Job, perhaps the richest among the earth, and then under the hand of Satan, God allowed the man to to lose everything that he had. But then in the end, when he refused to curse God, when he prayed for his friends, God restored to him double what he had lost. And so material wealth, finances, money, it was almost universally seen as a sign of spiritual approval. This is why the story of the rich man and the beggar called Lazarus was so very shocking. We would have imagined that the rich man would have surely been the one that was there in Abraham's bosom, but he was not. This was so contrary to everything they had been taught. To them, riches were an indication of divine favor. It was a reward for some type of spiritual piety. Yes, in the Old Testament, God made provision for the poor and for the needy, but they were not the favored. It was the rich. It was the rich who were approved by God. It was the rich who were under the blessing of God, and yet somehow this man knew. Somehow this man knew that there was something that he lacked. He lacked eternal life. He lacked the eternal life which only God can give, and he knew exactly where to go to get it. This man knew, perhaps like Nicodemus, he had heard the teaching of Jesus. He knew his teaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. He knew that Jesus was more than an ordinary man. He knew that he was a man from God. 
He saw in the power and in the authority just a righteousness that this man exuded. He knew that this was a man from God. So this rich young ruler, this man who had everything the world told him he needed, he came to Jesus Christ seeking eternal life. Don't skip over this. This is where so many people lose track of what this story is all about. We get so caught up in the money. We get so caught up in the idea that God would call this man to sell everything he has and give it away to the poor that we miss the fact that just how extraordinary this man is. This man is the absolutely picture-perfect so-called seeker. We're told so often that we need to be a seeker-sensitive church. We need to modify our language, our worship, our teaching, our demands, We need to make sure that the non-believing world is as comfortable as possible whenever they come into this place. We're told that there's all these seekers out there, just all these people seeking after God, seeking after eternal life, and if we can just twist our methods in a way that satisfy them, then surely all of them will accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We'll find mass conversions in a church house just full of people following after Jesus. We can just match up our methods with what they're looking for. So make certain that you don't talk anything about sin or hell. Whatever you do, don't mention the wrath of God. Don't scare them away by talking about church covenants or or church discipline. Don't go too deep or rely too heavily on the Holy Scriptures. And look, when when it comes to worship, just make sure you don't get too serious. Don't have too much sobriety about this thing. Don't focus too much on the glory, on the weight, on the majesty of God. Just keep it as light and easy as possible. Keep the barrier to entry. Keep the bar as low as possible. And then you're just going to see a stream of these seekers coming to Jesus Christ. And while Scripture makes clear that no man seeks after God, look, here we have in this morning's text the poster boy for the seeker-sensitive movement. This man, he comes running up and he kneels before Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Evangelistic encounters do not get any easier than this. No one had to go looking for this guy. Nobody had to go and knock on his door. He came running to Jesus Christ. This is every pastor's dream. In most Southern Baptist churches, within a month, this man would be a deacon or the chairperson on the most important committee. You can picture it today. The young, rich, powerful guy in town. Everybody knows him and everybody wants to be around him. And he shows up in your worship service. And the preacher has no sooner finished his sermon, he hasn't even offered the invitation, and the man comes running to the front, he kneels down, and he says, Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know the answer is the preacher kneels down and he says, Dear brother, just repeat after me. Just say this prayer and eternal life will be yours. This were the average youth conference or VBS, the man wouldn't even have to come running. He wouldn't even have to recite the prayer out loud. He could sit right there in his pew, and he could just say in his head along with the preacher this prayer that he has said. And at the end, raise your hand to indicate that you have been saved. I don't say this to be funny. I don't say this to beat a dead horse. I say this because this is the state of modern evangelism. Preachers pretending like the whole world is seeking after God. Preachers pretending like if they can just set the bar low enough, if they can just demand a little enough, if they can just make it easy enough, that the whole world is going to come to follow Jesus Christ. But if we see anyone that shows any interest in Jesus Christ, we see anyone with any desire to inherit eternal life, we see anyone with any interest in spiritual things, the race is on. How quickly can we get them to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? How quickly can we get them to recite some sinner's prayer? Even if they would just nod their head and agree. Even if they would just ascend to some set of facts that we would tell them to believe, then we're going to give them absolute assurance that eternal life is theirs. And some of them are going to fall away. Some of them, after the day of their baptism, we won't see them back in the church house ever again. Even of those that continue to show up in the church house, most of those will have no evidence of a changed life whatsoever. They're going to continue living just like their neighbors. But you know what? They wanted to follow after Jesus Christ. They wanted eternal life. And they were so sincere when they said it. There was so much emotion. They cried, after all when they said that they wanted to follow Jesus Christ. So despite the fact that there is no changed life, there is no radical transformation, there's no obedience to Jesus Christ, we assure them that eternal life is theirs because we have for so long chanted, once saved, always saved, that we have no idea what that means. Following Jesus Christ is nothing other than believing some intellectual things. 
making some blanket statement of confession. While we'll never see them in the church house again, we give them assurance that someday we're going to see them in heaven. While we'll never see a transformation in your life, we assure them that they're going to be glorified in heaven in the final days. And you sit there in silence because you know that it's true. I stand here heartbroken because I know that I've done it. I will answer to God for so many young children that I've led in a believer's prayer and then hugged their neck and told them, you are now my brother. You are now my sister, and I shall one day see you in heaven. And Lord knows where those children are today. Wandering around in the earth with an assurance that is absolutely empty and false and lifeless. Let's see how Jesus replies. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If there really was such a thing as a, the prayer, don't you think Jesus would have introduced it? Or at very least, don't you think that he would have run out his well-rehearsed five-point gospel presentation at this point while telling the man, don't you want to go to heaven? The last thing you would expect Jesus to do at this moment was to make things difficult. The last thing you would expect Jesus to do at this point was to make this man uncomfortable and to challenge him where he stood. But the Lord responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there are people that say what Jesus is doing here is he's confessing that he is not perfect. He's an ordinary man like everybody else, but this is not true. Jesus Christ knew no sin, infinitely holy, perfectly righteous, unendingly good. The issue was that this man did not know that it was before God that he knelt. He didn't have any idea that Jesus was God. Now, he knew there was something abnormal here. It wasn't common for men to call each other good in that day. Even among the most renowned rabbis, they didn't call each other good because they knew that God alone was good, and they were worried about offending him. And yet, there was something so different about this man before who he knelt that he was willing to call him good. This man unknowingly, unwittingly, he said the truth. Only God is good, and Jesus Christ as God, he is good. Jesus wasn't correcting the man's statement. He was correcting his heart. He was using this opportunity to bring him to greater sight. He was teaching the man. He was teaching the disciples. He was teaching us. He was saying, good, you have no idea what good is because you grade on a curve. You grade on a sliding scale. You, like the rest of humanity, you look around at all the rest of the world and you say, well, I must be pretty good because I'm better than that guy, or at least I'm not bad, or at least I'm not that bad. You grade on a curve, and so you stand here and you call me good. Stop throwing that word good around. You want to know good? You must look to the infinitely good God. He alone is your standard. He is the only picture of goodness and righteousness and holiness, and you would not dare call yourself or any other man good if you had truly seen who he is. Quit grading on a curve. We must come into the presence of God like Isaiah, standing before the presence of God as the holy angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all of a sudden, we ain't so good anymore. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips amongst unclean people. We recognize real quickly exactly where we stand before God, and we must begin there. The gospel must begin at this point. This is why every time I read Scripture, or very often when we read Scripture, I did it this morning, I recite to you this prayer. It's a prayer that I stole from Alistair Begg, but he stole it from an old hymn, so I don't feel so bad. But the prayer goes, Father God, make this book live to me. In it, show me yourself. Because it is not until we see the glorious, the infinitely holy, the ferociously good face of God that we can truly see ourselves. And it is not until we see God as he is and see ourselves as we are that we have any hope of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be nothing but a thing to be done until we see God as he is. And in his face, in the glory of his face, we are see ourselves as we are. They're in the presence of the infinitely holy God. Men do not call themselves good any longer. This is why men do not wrestle with this word. This is why so many who even call themselves Christian, they don't wrestle with this word and they don't dare go on their knees before the living God because he just might show up. And where does that leave me? No longer good. No longer righteous. Because in the face of the Almighty God, there is no room for cockiness. There is no room for self-assurity. There is no room for self-righteousness. There is no room for smugness. Dear friends, you want to know a man that I worry for when I stand in this pulpit and sing and, and preach? I'll sing too. But when I stand in this pulpit and preach, you want to know the man that I'm terrified for? The one that sits there with a smug look on his face. The Israelites heard the voice of God from a mountain, and they couldn't stand it. 
The Apostle John had been with Jesus. My very favorite scene in all the Bible is he leans back against the chest of Jesus Christ. This man had been with Jesus, and yet in the face of his glorious Savior on the Isle of Patmos, he fell down like a dead man. Listen to the words of Job, Job, a righteous man, a man who lost everything and continued to praise the name of God. And yet in the end, Job 42, 5 through 6, I've heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. We must see the glorious face of God to see ourselves as we are. But men don't like to see themselves as they are. We like to lie to ourselves that we're mostly good, that we're mostly okay, or at least we're giving it our best effort. We must see the face of God and recognize we are not good. And so, it is there in the face of Jesus Christ, seeing the goodness of God, we behold his infinite goodness and our absolute wretchedness, it is there that we would not dare cry out to Jesus, what may I do? to be saved, knowing that there's nothing you can do. I don't know who Amber is, but everybody's looking for her. It's only there. We must start the gospel there with the goodness, the perfection, the holiness of God, and there be driven to our knees and knowing that we ourselves are not good, that we are unclean, that we are unworthy, and it's only then that we are going to desperately seek after the Savior the only Savior sent from heaven. So Jesus tells the man, you don't know what good is, or you would not come to me and ask me what you can do to inherit eternal life. Jesus takes the man then back to the law, the place where God has revealed himself. Now, of course, in Jesus Christ, we see the image of the invisible God. He is the fullest, the ultimate revelation of who God is. But again, this man does not yet know that Jesus is God. And so as a first century Jewish man, a man who knows the law, Jesus takes the man back to the law. He reveals himself there. Of course, this isn't just the natural order of the cosmos. This isn't just some spiritual force. This is the self-revelation of the living God. Ever since the beginning, God has been revealing himself in his moral law hidden in the hearts of men. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 2. And then, with the coming of Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments, we see an even greater revelation, with even greater clarity, the law of God, the goodness how the goodness and the moral character of God affects all of his creation. It shows us his good and perfect and infinitely righteous standard, and there it reveals to us our sin. Our sin cannot hide in the face of this good God. Underneath the weight of the infinitely glorious standard of this good God. So Jesus tells the man, verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Jesus takes the man to the second of the two tablets, those six laws which relate to, honor, uh, to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. He doesn't even touch on the first four yet. I would argue the tougher, the sneakier, the hardest to observe and understand of the laws, those laws which relate to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. He takes him to the four relating to the neighbor. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie. Honor your father and your mother. Do not defraud, which I'm accepting here, believing here, that this is tied some way to coveting. But Jesus tells the man, according to Matthew, if you would enter life, you must keep the commandments. And we know. We know that no man can keep the commandments. There is none righteous, no, not one. We know that man, born into Adam, that we are born into sin, not only with the sinful nature, but with the guilt of sin upon us. We know that no man can uphold the law. No man even truly desires to uphold the law. And so what the purpose of the law in this moment was, was to drive this man to an understanding of his wretchedness. That this law was meant to, it's meant stroke, struggle under the weight of it. It's men try to attain to it. It's men try to accomplish perfection under the infinitely holy, the perfectly righteous standard of God. They recognize, I am lost. I am sinful. I am broken. I am weak. And ultimately, they are driven towards Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. That the law imprisons all men. It serves as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, as an overseer, guiding them graciously to Jesus Christ. It is man struggles under this. They see the perfect law of God, and they see how short they fall. They find themselves trapped, imprisoned. It's like quicksand. The harder you try, the more you dig, the harder you swim, the deeper you go. And ultimately, the most de more desperately you come to the realization that you need Jesus Christ. It's then that you can come to him humbly, open-handed, like a child, knowing that you have nothing to offer. No righteousness of your own, no holiness of your own, no goodness of your own. It's only then that you're ready to come to Jesus Christ and bow to him as Lord and King, to cling to him as if He's the only thing in the entire universe. 
This is the purpose of the law. But Jesus says to him, or excuse me, the man says to Jesus, verse 20, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. You notice he just calls him teacher and not good this time. He's a quick study. I'm imagining that's why he's gotten rich. He doesn't dare call Jesus good teacher. He says, teacher, yes. Yes, rabbi, I've done all of this ever since I was a boy. And you know, I don't think the dude was lying. I think that outwardly, the man had not bore false witness. He had not committed adultery. He had honored his father and his mother. He hadn't killed anybody. We're not given any indication that this man had stolen his money or defrauded anyone out of the wealth that he had. I believe that this man was much like the uh, Pharisee called Saul who would go on to be called Paul. I believe he was zealous for the law. I believe he gave himself to keeping the very letter of the law. But obviously, this rich young man, he was either oblivious to or did not believe Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't understand that sin begins in the heart. The sin originates in our heart, that it infiltrates our thoughts, that there is no man that can perfectly keep this law because all of our hearts are filthy and broken and rotten and in rebellious and rebellion against God. Understand that to even look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery in our heart. Obviously, this man believed that he could keep this righteousness on his own. He believed because he kept the outward, external ordinances of the law that surely he must be good before God. Not understanding that deep down, his heart hated the law of God. His heart rebelled against the law of God, but because his hands did the right things, because his mouth spoke the right words, he came to Jesus believing that he must be innocent, that he must be righteous. To this rich young ruler, the law of God, it was nothing more than a thing to be done. It was a box to be checked. It was a ladder to be climbed. And so he comes to Jesus Christ saying, okay, would you show me that next rung? I've accomplished the 99%. I've done most all of what needs to be done. Just give me this final touch, this final piece of the puzzle so I can put it all together. I've conquered all the rest. Just give me one more test to overcome, and then I know that eternal life will be mine. He came to Jesus Christ much like many people come to church, like they were a little girl going to finishing school. God, would you just polish me up? Would you just add those last finishing touches so that I can be ready for heaven? But Jesus looks at the man, and he loved him. Emblepo means to look intently. Jesus didn't just make eye contact with this man. He saw into this man. Jesus, who has created all men, who holds all men together, who knows the heart of every man, he looked at this man and he loved him. Agape. This isn't just an attitude. This isn't just an affection. This isn't empty, empty emotions. This is a verb. This is a selfless, selfless, sacrificial love which drives men to action. This is the most honorable and pure and righteous of love. This is a love which finds its root in the goodness of the one that loves and not in the worth or the beauty of the one that's being loved. Jesus Christ looks to this man, he truly sees this man, and he loves this man with this kind of high and holy and noble and righteous love. And he says this, what Jesus says next is driven by love. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, then come and follow me. This good and decent and religious man. He humbled himself knowing that there was a thing that he lacked. He came running, not caring who saw him. He fell on his knees before Jesus Christ, and he asked for eternal life. He came to the right person with the right question in the right posture, and Jesus begins to talk to him about the law. And then once he's done talking to him about the law, he tells the man he must sell all his possessions and go and give them away to the poor. Dear friends, this is the worst gospel presentation in the history of the world. No one writes it like this. We're screaming to him, Jesus, that's not the way they taught us to do it in faith. Go through the outline. You've memorized the verses. You know the next step. Jesus, why don't you just give them your personal testimony? That's what saves people, right? Y'all hate me, don't you? I've stood there and I've done it. I've done it. I've turned the gospel of Jesus Christ into nothing more than the rote recitation of just some some outline some words that I've memorized I'm not even listening to the answers of the guy sitting in front of me because I've just got to get to my next point I've just got to get them to nod their head in agreement and Jesus turns the whole thing upside down because don't you see this man has an idol this man has an idol he may well have done a great job of honoring his neighbors of loving his neighbors as he loved himself as a matter of fact I imagine that Jesus could have given this man a hundred more commandments and he would have gone out and devoted his life to keeping every last one of them But he missed the first. You shall have no other gods before me. This man would have argued. He said, no, Jesus, I have never worshipped a false god in my life. But he had and he was. This man's false god, his idol, his savior was his possessions. And under the cloak of good works, under the cover of good works, he was allowed to go off and continue with that idol. 
continued giving himself and his life over to this false dead God because he was hiding behind these good works that he had performed. He kept his hands busy over here keeping the law of God all while his heart belonged to another. And Jesus was calling the man to put this thing to death because Jesus will not allow you to serve another God while claiming to follow after him. The call to discipleship, it means abandoning everything. Abandoning house, abandoning family, abandoning jobs, abandoning fishing boats and tax booths, letting loose of your health and your wealth and your reputation and your very life. Jesus Christ, he saw this man. He saw into his heart. Jesus loved the man, but what he saw in this man's heart was that he loved another, that he loved a false God, and he was calling the man to put that God to death. It was much like the Samaritan woman there on the well. Jesus knew that that woman's problem was her relationship with men. And so what does he say to her? Go and get your husband. You see, Jesus wasn't making some absolute statement about welfare. He was dealing with the idol in this man's life. It is the love of money which is the root of all evil. There are plenty of poor people that idolize money. And there are plenty of wealthy people that faithfully follow after Jesus Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man in whose tomb Jesus was buried. The woman with the alabaster flask, she must have had some kind of wealth in order to come to him this way. Money can be used quite well in the kingdom of God when it's kept in its proper place. It's the love of money that's the problem. Jesus wasn't calling all believers here to poverty. He wasn't calling us all here to give away, to sell all of our possessions. This wasn't some call to radical socialism. Jesus was dealing with the idol that was in this man's life. But Jesus knew where this man's heart was. He knew what form his sin took. He knew just what his idol looked like, and he knew the last thing in the world he wanted to hear Jesus say. And I would remind you, if you walked in here this morning and you saw the text that we were going to read, and you thought to yourself, if this dude tells me i got to sell all my possessions and give them away, my head is going to explode. And then you found yourself breathing a deep sigh of relief whenever I told you that this was not an absolute commandment, dear friends, you may have an idol. You may be just like this man. You may not be rich, but the things you do have, or perhaps the things that you hope to have, they may well be the God in your life. You see, I'm, I'm not Jesus. I can't see into your heart, but I can ask questions. That's what I do when people come to me. I view myself like a doctor. I'm just poking around until you say, ouch. And then I know I've found the spot. I know that I've found the problem. And so I ask you, does it make you angry whenever I call you to abandon relationships that God's word has clearly told you are forbidden? Does it make you upset when I tell you that it offends the living God if you refuse to faithfully come into this place and worship him, to link your life with other believers, to serve and to give faithfully to him? Do you want to punch me in the face whenever I talk to you about personal holiness? Does it offend you when you, someone who believes you've followed after Jesus Christ for decades, when I tell you the basic gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you tell me to stay in my own lane whenever I come and talk to you about the way you raise your children, the way you treat your spouse, the way you handle your money, the way you carry yourself on the job site, the kind of trucks that you drive, the way that you live, your language, your drinking habits, your internet search habits? Then we keep going? We go long enough, not a one of us gets out of here alive. I include myself follow after Jesus Christ, to come into a place like this, believing we're following after Jesus Christ. We come in here with sincere hearts. We come in here believing that we want Jesus Christ more than anything in all the world. We come in here desiring um, eternal, eternal life. We believe that we come in here with a humble heart, and we believe that we come in here and that we put everything on the table. We believe that we have pushed all our chips in the middle of the table, and we have said, Jesus Christ, there is nothing that we hold back from you. And he says, yeah, what about that? What about your reputation? What about your children? What about your son's select baseball team? What about your weekends off? What about your marriage? What about your ministry? Would you dare hold that back from me? Would you dare claim that you follow after me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength while continuing to hold back those parts that you refuse to let me touch? Those parts that you are so terrified I'm going to call you to lay down in sake of the service of me, your king? Would you dare do that and believe that you can follow after me? You see, Jesus wasn't telling the man, you've got this one more thing you can do. Oopsie, you missed this one commandment in the back. You've done a really good job of keeping these other 99, but you missed this one little thing way back there in the back. No, he's saying you've completely missed it all. 
You've completely missed it all. The purpose of these laws that you think that you're upholding, you've completely missed them all because you have continued to hold on to this false god. Because you're worshiping at the foot of this idol. Because you have held this thing back. And I'm sure this wasn't an evil man. I'm sure this man didn't wake up. He didn't steal his money. I'm sure he paid his tithes. He gave his alms. I'm sure to him, he believed that this money was a gift from God because he was faithfully using it in service to the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, it has always belonged to me. Now return it to me. You say you want eternal life? You say you want to know God, then return it to me and trust me with every day from this point forward. You come to me on these terms or you do not come to me at all. You need to know, my dear friend, that I hate your good works because your good works, they serve to whitewash a wicked heart. Your good works allow you to sneak around in darkness while loving this false God that is not God. And I'm calling you now to put it to death. I'm calling you now to repent. This man needed to repent. He needed to repent of idolatry. He needed to repent of his religious pride. He needed to repent even of his good works. Do you hear me? There are some of us that we have grown up in the church house and we know all the rules of God. We can recite the Ten Commandments in our sleep. We've been good little boys from way back. We, just like this man, would come to Jesus. We wouldn't dare say we have kept them all. But we have said, Jesus, we've been mostly good. We have devoted ourselves to the keeping of your laws. And he would say to you, you must repent of these good works. These good works that you believed could earn you a relationship with me. These good works that you believed could earn you righteousness in my kingdom. These good works which have allowed you the cover to go and hold on to these false idols. Repent of your good works and turn away. Repentance isn't just being sorry. Repentance isn't just acknowledging. It isn't even just saying that you're sorry. It's turning away and putting to death. Anything and everything that comes between you and Jesus Christ. Anything and everything which occupies places in your hearts what ought to be reserved for God. To see all that you have and all that you have done is nothing if not handed over to the kingdom of God and used in service to him. And then you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ. You throw yourself wholly and completely upon the rock, the refuge, the one that everyone else finds as a stumbling block, the one that will crush everyone else in those last days. You throw yourself upon him completely and wholly and say, I've got nothing. You ask me to give away my wealth, I count it as nothing in the start. There's nothing that I can offer to you. There's nothing that I can commend myself with. There's no good works. And the crazy thing is, Jesus tells the man, you will have treasures in heaven. If you just let go of this stuff, this stuff that's all going to burn up in the end, these mud pies, you're like a stupid kid making mud pies. Don't you understand? And I'm telling you to let go of them, and I will give you eternal treasure, unending treasure, treasure which cannot burn up in the end, which will not burn up in the end. You see, this man thought that he was rich. What he didn't know was that all along he was building a mountain of debt. He had to send debt to God, the likes of which he couldn't fathom. He was storing up for himself wrath for that day of judgment. And Jesus says, I will handle your debt. You couldn't pay an ounce of it. You couldn't pay a lick of it. But I will handle your debt in full. It will be finished completely. But let go of these things because you cannot have me and the God of this world as well. Did you think that this was possible? And you'll notice that this was right at the beginning of their relationship. Jesus doesn't tell them, okay, you know what? You want eternal life. Say this little prayer, and then after some time, you'll go through a course, and then we're going to get to the more difficult and weighty things. No, this is the beginning. He said, you want eternal life? You want to enter the kingdom? You want salvation? Now, go and do this. He didn't give him a night to sleep on it. He didn't worry that his challenge was too hard and that he might offend the man. He didn't worry that because he was calling this man to such radical obedience that he may never have an opportunity to speak the truth to the man again. He said, today, the kingdom of his God is at hand today. Today, repent. Today, believe. Today, put those gods to death and follow after me. There is no tomorrow. There is no promise of another opportunity. Today is the day. The king stands before you. Bow your knee and worship me, knowing that it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Who lied to you? Who lied to you? No, you can't bring anything to the kingdom of God. No, you can't do anything to earn salvation. But dear friends, who told you that it would cost you nothing in this life? Who told you that it would be easy? Who told you that you could continue living the way that you were living? They lied. You really think that you can enter the kingdom of God? That you can follow after the king while refusing to bow your knee and submitting wholly and completely to his rule and to his reign, to his claim over everything in your life? Of course your repentance won't be perfect. Of course your faith won't be as deep as it should be. But your salvation doesn't rest in that. It doesn't rest in the strength of your repentance. It doesn't rest in the strength of your faith. That's why he says to come to him like a child. I've made no secret of the fact I love kids, man. I especially love them when they're in that age where they're still super light, but they figure out how to cling, like they wrap their legs in their arms when you hold them. I love that stage, like little monkeys, right? 
But the reality is they think they're holding on to you. They don't know that you are holding on to them. And when there's a big scary noise in the room, they cling to you a whole lot tighter, not knowing that if you let go, they're falling to the ground. It's Jesus Christ who holds your salvation. It is Jesus Christ who is secured and will make sure that your salvation endures to the very end. It is all the work of Jesus Christ. And yet he says, come to me like a little, chi- like a little child, like a little monkey infant, and just cling to me like your life depends on it. Don't try to go face these challenges on your own. Don't think that you're big and bad. Don't think that you're lucky to have, that I'm lucky to have you holding onto my neck. You need to know that I'm holding you up at all times and in every way so that when someone comes to you and they say, what basis do you have of assurance that you are saved? You don't say, well, look at how strong my faith. Look at how real my repentance No, you point back 2,000 years and you say, Jesus Christ died for me. He died the death that I deserve. He paid the punishment that I owed. And Jesus Christ will not let me go. That's where so many of us lose our assurance of salvation. Because we look at our weak faith. Look at our faulty repentance. We think that the value, that that the worth, that our... Our place in the kingdom of God is tied to the strength of that. And he says, no, you come to me like a baby, completely and wholly dependent, trusting in my goodness, trusting in my strength. But the man, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the only time in Mark where a man is called to follow Jesus, but he walks away instead, disheartened. The other gospel teachers say that his face fell. He was visibly sad as he heard all that Jesus called him to do. He wasn't down for all that. He just wanted his get-out-of-hell-free card like everybody else. Just give me another challenge to overcome. Give me another mountain to climb. Give me another opportunity to flex my spiritual strength. I don't mean to follow after you like all that. I don't need to give like that. What use am I to your kingdom, Jesus, if I don't bring anything into it? I spent my lifetime accumulating this wealth. This wealth was a gift from God, and now you're telling me to give it away and then to come into the kingdom? I have no desire for all that. I'll go find another way, but thank you. I'll go find my own path, Jesus, but I cannot continue down this one with you. man had no awareness of just how far he was gone. This man had no awareness of just how far he was separated from God. In his mind, he was almost there. He was right at the doorstep. But in the end, this man was almost saved. Do you know what it means to be almost saved? It means to be totally lost. Almost saved is nothing. Unless there was some transformative work in this man's life that we're not told about in the scriptures, this man lived out the remainder of his life enjoying these possessions. And this, may I remind you, was a real man. This wasn't a parable. This was a real man, a real man that Jesus saw and Jesus loved. And unless God did something later that we're not told about here, this decent, religious, moral man continued to go to the synagogue. He continued to obey the laws of God. No one would have called him bad. No one would have assumed him lost. This man continued to live this good, decent, moral, religious life while continuing to enjoy all the good gifts that this world has to offer. And today, he continues to think back to that day with Jesus Christ, knowing that he was almost saved. And that almost saved amounts to nothing. He suffers in the fires of hell today. He suffers under the infinite wrath of the infinitely holy God day and night, night and day. There will be no release. There will be no mercy. There will be no letting up because on this day he refused to heed the call to repent and believe. And you might be right to be sitting there thinking, wait a minute. You're telling me that this dude was lost because he refused to do something? You're telling me that this dude was lost because he refused to do this difficult thing, this thing that most of us would have great trouble doing, namely selling everything we have and giving it to the poor. Isn't that a works-based salvation, dear friends? No, because don't you see, if this man had truly repented, if this man had truly seen the glorious face of Jesus Christ, if this man had truly come to hate his sin, if this man had truly come to see that Jesus Christ was his only hope in all the universe, wild horses wouldn't have been able to stop him from getting rid of that wealth. Wild horses would not have been able to stop him from the hatred, the resentment. He would have seen his wealth for exactly what it was. It was a snare. It was a trap. It was a slave master. It had pulled him away from the living God. He would have hated his wealth. He would have hated his reputation. He would have hated his rule and his place amongst all the other people. He would have hated those things because he would have known what an offense they were to his God and to his Savior. Wild horses would not have been able to drag him away on that day. He wouldn't have walked away disheartened. He would have clung into the dirt. He would have grabbed onto Jesus' feet. He would have said, Jesus, do not walk away from me. 
I want you more than anything else in this world. Dear friends, the problem wasn't that he didn't do something. The problem is his heart drove him not to do that thing. His heart was wicked. His heart was hard. His heart was rebellious. He didn't want Jesus. He wanted the gifts that Jesus offers, but he did not want Jesus Christ. And dear friends, that is heaven. So many Christian men, they do exactly this. I mentioned to you earlier the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes to her and he begins to talk about some real stuff. And her immediate response was, oh, I see you're a religious man. Let's talk about styles of worship. He goes, nah, 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 nah. Let's talk about your house. We come to men and we begin to call them to repentance. And they go, oh, no, no, let's not, let's not talk about my kids, my wife, my money, my search habits. Let's talk about Armenianism versus Calvinism. Let's talk about the timing of the return of Christ. You see, I'm too high-minded for those kind of things. We don't need to talk about personal holiness. My checkbook is none of your business. The way I pray or don't pray with my children, the way I spend my Saturday, that's none of your business. You see, I've been saved for years. I've moved on from that baby stuff. I want to talk about some heavy stuff. I want to talk about the deep doctrines. I want to talk about the things that can't really be known. Jesus rips right into the middle of your heart and he says no this is the problem dear friend this is the problem people have no idea how radically their lives will be transformed if they truly follow after Jesus Christ if they live lives of true repentance and true belief they have no idea the day-to-day changes that are going to come from that they think they can follow after Jesus Christ and just keep rocking along like they always have but now they got a new team to support I support a new team. I've switched teams. Now I'm on Team Jesus. I keep living like the rest of the world, but I claim the name of Jesus Christ. No, it will transform everything about you. What do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you give your money to? What do you lead your children towards? Everything. It will affect everything. But men don't want to talk about that stuff. You don't want to talk about that stuff. I don't want to talk about that stuff. I go into my prayer closet, and I pray to God, and I pray mostly about you people because you're all screwed up. And I'm afraid that if I stop focusing on how screwed up you are, Jesus is going to deal with my life. He's going to say, yeah, what about that? Is that out of bounds? Have you pulled that back off the table? He looks into our life and he says, you don't talk to me about high and holy and spiritual things. You don't talk to me about my return. You don't talk to me about these, these secondary, these tertiary issues. You are a drunk. You're a glutton. You're a philanderer. You don't lead your children in personal holiness. You don't bring your children to the church house to worship me. You don't serve me. Or even worse, you do all of those things perfectly while hiding in the closet with your little idol. You're dead stone cold sober. You hadn't cheated on your wife even in your mind. You pray with your children every night. You come to the church house every Sunday morning. And then you hit that door and go right back to your nice, neat, socially acceptable idols. I'd rather you run like a wild dog. I'd rather you follow after the pattern of this world. I'd rather you be like the thief on the cross or like the adulterous woman out there on the street. I'd rather you at least live like the world and know you're living like the world than come in here and nod your head with smugness, shouting amen and hallelujah, singing a bunch of pretty songs while going right back out and being lost just like the rest of the world. Dear friends, I hate apathy. That's that's what keeps me up at night. That's what torments me, the thought that I would come into this place, that you would hear all of these things. And completely walk away unchanged. And you'll notice that Jesus, he doesn't chase after the man. He lets him go because he loves the man and love tells the truth. In love, he lets the man walk away. He doesn't look to the praise team. He says, hey, keep playing. Come just as you are until the spirit moves. We need four more people to come forward so we can report that to the administrative offices. No, 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 no. He lets the man walk away. Because love tells the truth, and there was only one true gospel. There was only one way of eternal life. There was only one way of obedience and discipleship. The most hateful thing Jesus could have done was give this man false assurance. The most hateful man thing Jesus could have done was given this man a prayer to say and then send him on his way. No, dear friends, because the kingdom of God is, was at hand, it was time to repent and to believe in the gospel. And I am so afraid there are so few Christians that truly understand what this means, truly understand what this looks like. And again, it's not all their fault because they've been misled by preachers like me, men who are so destined for a pulpit, so destined for a platform and for an audience, so desperate to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they never actually took the time to read the word and see what it says. So desperate to be called pastor, they never actually spent their time on their knees in prayer, praying out to the living God, God, examine me. 
Reveal in me the things that do not belong before I dare go out there and preach to other men about these things. They're so destined, they're so determined to build for themselves an audience, they didn't dare challenge you to the hard things. They're so worried about their own reputation and being liked, they didn't dare call you to something like radical obedience, to personal holiness, to giving your all to Jesus Christ. They were so practically minded that they didn't dare put themselves in positions where they had to rely on the supernatural work of God. And so they took the gospel of Jesus Christ and they put it into human terms, into a bunch of things that can just be done by any old person. You don't need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You don't need new birth. You don't need the supernatural work of God in your life. Just go do this stuff. Anybody can recite a prayer. Anybody can nod their head. Anybody can let me dunk them in a baptismal. Those things don't require the supernatural work of God. So they've dumbed it down to this level. They brought it to the lowest common denominator to make sure that as many people as possible or as comfortable as possible as they head straight to the gates of hell. It's not all your fault. It's the fault of men like me. Because we're afraid to say the hard things because the hard things might come back to us. Or because I might find myself preaching to an empty room. Dear friends, you have no idea how thankful I am for you. I've punched you in the face week after week after week and you keep coming back. Nobody comes to this church because it's fun. When I find out, people will say, hey, we saw you online. We listened to one of your sermons and we're here. I'm like, you're crazy. You must want the truth. So my hope for you this morning is that you don't walk out of this place the same way you walked in. That you come into this place either so offended, so furious with me because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or that you would walk out of this place sad, knowing that you have counted the cost. At least you have counted the cost, and you just say, I'm not willing to pay it. Or that you walk out of this place on fire because you have seen the face of Jesus Christ and you know that he is yours. You've seen the face of Jesus Christ and you know how depraved you are. You know how wicked you are. You know how vile your heart is. And yet in the light of all of that, you know that Jesus Christ has done it all. You know that eternal life is yours. That you walk out of this place on fire for the kingdom of God. You walk out of this place without a doubt in your mind that Jesus Christ is yours and that your salvation is safe and secure in his hands until the very, very end. That you walk out of this place transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that the rest of the world looks at you and goes, that man must have been with Jesus. There is no other explanation. Dear friends, I pray that you walk out of this place encouraged. Or else you walk out of this place determined that I am crazy and out of my mind and you go do something else with your Sunday mornings. But dear friends, there is no in between. To come into contact with Jesus Christ to come into contact and to truly hear the gospel of Jesus Christ is to do one of two things, is to reject him for all eternity or to throw yourself at his feet and be saved. Dear friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, and be saved. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the assurance of salvation found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and in nothing that we have or will or can do. Father, I thank you for this people that is willing to endure the sound and solid and difficult teaching of your gospel. Father, we seek to be a people who worship and honor and glorify you, not merely with words from a pulpit, but with the meditations of our heart and the actions of our lives. So, Father, as we seek to lift up a song of praise to you now, we pray that we would be affected, we would be changed as a result of that, and that you would be glorified. Be glorified now, Father. For we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.